Um, you guys can uh, open up your Bibles. Well, I should say, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. The um, ushers are happy to bring you one, and if you don't own one, it's our gift to you. But when you do get a Bible in your hand there, if you wouldn't mind opening up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So you remember in the New Testament, you got the Gospels, and then you move into Acts, and then Paul's epistles. And near the end of, of Paul's letters is where you're going to find the letter to 1 Thessalonians. Um, and we're going to be in chapter 5, verse 14. We've been in Luke. We're going to continue on in Luke soon enough. Um, although, I think I mentioned last week we might take a, a, a delay uh, through probably September into part of October um, to kind of roll out a, a Covenant Members series. That's my prayer, my hope. You could pray for me as well in that. I think it's going to be a lot of work, but I think it's time and I feel excited about it. Um, so it might be a you know good month or two until we actually return to Luke, but uh, we will get back there. For now, this is now our second um, week looking at this text. Let me read it. We'll pray and uh, we'll get in. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14, says this. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And that's it. Let's pray. God, we, we come to be addressed by you. So often when you spoke to crowds, you would say something like, any that have ears, let them hear. God, I'm praying that this morning you would give us ears by the Spirit, to hear your word. I pray, God, that you would protect us from um, the temptation towards being, being a church that's more about entertainment or quick little slogans or fun little messages than about silencing our, ourselves, getting down on our faces and hearing from Almighty God. And living under your word, living, uh, building our lives on top of your word, living in light of your word. God, you speak and the universe comes into being. You speak and fallen man is born again. You speak and our souls have nourishment. And our downcast souls find hope. This text lines out real specific ways that we are called by you to love. But Lord, I know that you call us to do and to love others only in the way that you've loved us. And so today I pray for the unruly in our midst. 
those that are stubborn in sin, I, I ask you, God, to admonish them. To go after them. Not to let them think that playing with sin is just kind of a game. But it's life and death. I'll pray for the faint-hearted, God, that you would come in these moments, by the power of your Spirit, you would encourage them. You'd lift them up. You'd console them with your presence, the gospel, your commitment to them. And I pray for the weak, those that feel like they are incapacitated, disabled, unable, those that feel like they're just so needy. I pray our church wouldn't turn a, a cold shoulder. I pray your spirit would move us to support and love and care and pour ourselves out for them. I pray that we would love one another like we have been loved by our Heavenly Father. So God, it's a pretty lofty prayer. It's a big goal. It's simple stuff, but it, it requires the miracle of your grace. I pray that you would use our time together this morning to do that, God. In your name, I ask these things. Amen. Um, well, thank you guys for, for being here again uh, with me this morning. Um, I'm going to kind of, in just like a brief moment, kind of get us back into the flow. I, it's always hard when I've uh, developed something from, you know, the week prior, and some of you I know weren't here. I think we're, we didn't get it up online in time and things. So I want to just give you a brief, uh, you know, get us back in the flow so that we start going downstream again and we're in the current. Um, so last week, uh, because of what Jesus has done for us um, in his life, his death, and resurrection, I, I made note of the fact that we have now been adopted in, adopted into his covenant family. That we are now in relation with one another, we are now in, in, in God's family, and, and because of that we are, like the text says, brothers and sisters now with one another. We're, in co- we're covenant family with one another. And God calls us, as a covenant family, to pursue what I called last week the comprehensive shalom or peace of God. That we, as a family, are called to kind of start bringing in the peace of God that's going to that's gonna really envelop the whole cosmos by the end of the story, by the end of the age. And one of the ways we pursue this peace Peace, this shalom, is by living out 1 Thessalonians 5.14 together. We start walking this out. We start living this verse out with one another. I said that this verse is about wise love. And one of the first things that that we learn about wise love is that it is flexible, it is customizable, it is tailor-made to its object. In other words, if I am to love you truly, I need to know you rightly. I was thinking about, you know, if you've ever been in a... um, 
a wedding or something like that. You go, you go in, and you, you know those guys that they come, they got those big tapes, measure things, and they're doing all this number because they're trying to get to know your individual shapes, curves, sizes, so that when it comes time to put on that tux or put on that dress or whatever it is, it looks good. It fits. But so often what happens in the church is we don't take the time to get to know the other person rightly and therefore our love doesn't fit them truly. We kind of miss them. There's like a, there's like a cuff hanging down here and there's buttons popping off and the, the pants are sagging because we, we didn't take the time to measure and, it, and to, to figure out who are we actually dealing with here. Because what we see in our text is that there are different kinds of people. Wise love is going to look differently for different kinds of folks, depending on where they're at. Let me um, read to you something from a biblical counselor by the name of Mike Emler. He's actually a good friend of mine. Um, he taught over there at Westminster. He says this when he's commenting on our text. Paul differentiates between those who are purposely stirring up trouble, the idol, those who are primarily fearful, the faint-hearted, and those who are helpless, the weak. And Paul urges a different ministry priority for each. As you get to know someone, as you get to know someone, clarity develops about which of these aspects is most prominent. So he's saying there are different kinds of people that call for different kinds of, of, of expressions of love. And as you get to know them, that will start to become plain, kind of the, 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 the path that you should take. I gave us last week just two simple steps to help us along in this kind of as you get to know the person sort of process, this measuring, tailor-made sort of process, what I called humble diagnostics. And those two steps were so simple, yet so hard. I wonder if you found that in your relationships even this week. Uh, avoid assumptions and ask questions. So simple, you could teach it to kindergartners. So hard that, that, that 50-year-old men are still struggling with it. Avoid assumptions, ask questions. Am I dealing with the unruly, the faint-hearted, or the weak here each person calls for different expression of love. If I, if I don't avoid assumptions, if I don't ask questions, then in all my attempts at loving you, however well-meaning they are, I might actually come to find that I've done more harm than good. It just didn't fit. So this was the beginning of what I was calling wise love in action. Um, and I want to continue in this vein here this morning. I want to dive deeper into what I would call kind of the individual couplets. There's, there's three of them that Paul gives us, these, these little couplets uh, in our text. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. I want to dive deeper into those with you, and, 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 and I want to start looking at how, how we can walk out what Paul says together. Okay, so I'm avoiding assumptions. I'm asking questions. I'm starting to see who I'm dealing with. What does it mean to admonish? What does it mean to encourage? What does it mean to help? To help 
put some flesh on these terms for us, what we're going to do is actually get into the context in the Thessalonian church, because Paul's not just speaking off in the air. It, all these, these um, injunctions are actually grounded in what he's dealing with in this local church. And then, after looking at that, we'll kind of draw out implications for us, okay? Does that sound good? You guys asleep? You awake? There's a Starbucks across the street. We can take a break if you want. Uh, okay, first... First uh, couplet, if you will. Admonish the idol. Admonish the idol. We remember that the idol are, are not just those who are lazy, but, but when, you, when we looked at the Greek last time, it's actually talking about people that, not just lazy, but actually insubordinate. Not just apathetic, but actually kind of unruly or a little bit rebellious. Like the idol here are are the people that that see the line God has drawn and willfully cross it. Like I'm going to walk over. You can't tell me what to do. That's the unruly here or the idol. And such people Paul calls us to admonish or warn. To get in their face and say, this is not the way. Now, putting some flesh on these terms, um, let's look at what Paul's actually dealing with in the Thessalonian church. Want to know who these people are and how he starts to admonish them. What admonishment looks like. We get hints um, at the particular issue that Paul's dealing with uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4. Verses 11 and 12. He starts talking about these people that are actually, in fact, idle. They're not working. And he's kind of saying, we need to work with our hands. But he's just kind of hinting at this issue at this point. Later on, in the second letter that Paul writes to this church, the issue gets even clearer for us. And so I wanted to just, for the sake of time, go straight to that. That's 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15. The Thessalonian church was was so lucky, man. They got not just one, but two letters from the Apostle Paul. That's great. Kind of. Unless you're one of these guys that he's admonishing at this point. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Starting at verse 6. Let me read it to you. Remember, we're looking at what does it mean to admonish the idol? What is Paul talking about in this context? Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him eat. Or I'm sorry, let him not eat. (laughs) That wouldn't be good. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother." 
starts to get hard, right? This this one this this first part is is not is not easy for us to hear, but it seems that some um, church members are are selfishly exploiting uh, Christian charity, the charity of other members in the church. They're kind of you know maybe feigning like they have need, feigning like they're unable, and 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 they're just kind of living off the charity of the Christian community. They're kind of leeching rather than participating. Um, in this sense, they really are idle. And, and Paul says, essentially, you need to admonish these guys. You need to call them out. You can't just let this go on. True love is actually going to address the situation here. This is actually a perfect example of um, what I'm talking about, how you can't love uh, uh, truly unless you know rightly. Because this, this is, this is the church now encouraging and helping people that they actually should be admonishing. They're probably trying to love. They're trying to be like Christ. They want to do this thing, but they're not, they're not doing it wisely. Because actually, they need to stop the handouts here, is what Paul's saying. They need to stop kind of, uh, uh, perpetuating the rebellion of these brothers. They need to start getting in their face. This is one of those closed hand situations. We want to have open hands with the needs of people in our church. Absolutely. But there are times where the hand has to close and we say, wait a minute. I'm concerned here. What's going on? Now, let me make three observations regarding um, admonishment as it's kind of presented here. Because I think this one's probably the most controversial. It's probably the one that makes us the most uncomfortable. I want to start making it uh, as clear as I can for us. Three observations I want to make about admonishment. First, admonishment requires clear lines. This is important, you guys. If we're going to be a healthy church community, this is so important. I can't tell you how, how many Christians think it's like they're God's gift to the church and it's their job to point out every possible sin that they think, you know? And, 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 and you start firing away at things and you're not even sure exactly what's going on in the heart and yet you're sure. Ah, I know. I'm going to call you out. And what, what I'm saying here, what we see in Paul's example, is that admonishment requires clear lines. Clear lines. Paul had given the church a tradition to walk in, verse 6. An example to imitate, verse 9. And a clear command to follow. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat, verse 10. These guys saw the line. It was clear. And they willfully walked over it. And when they willfully walked over it, everyone else could see that they were doing it as well. It was clear. So the, the, in order for us to admonish rightly, there has to be a sense that the, the, the trespass, the transgression, is over a clear line. The moment it becomes this thing where we're not even sure, but we're ready to fire at them, we get into big, big trouble. The church saw this disobedience clearly and therefore they were called to do something about it. Admonishment requires clear lines. Second observation, admonishment rises in severity. You don't start off with with all the ammunition on high volume, right? We start off hoping for the people that they're going to turn and we start off very humble and gentle. So, it's interesting, I didn't go there, but in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12, his, his admonishment at this point is very low volume. 
You hardly know he's admonishing these, these idle brothers at this point. He's just kind of saying, hey, let's make sure we're working with our hands. Let's make sure that we're not burdening other people unnecessarily. But, but, when Paul gets word that things haven't changed, that these guys didn't listen to the first letter, they didn't, oh, they weren't changing their ways, they were still crossing the lines. Now we're in the second letter. That's what we just read. Second letter here. And so the volume goes up. Severity rises as stubbornness increases. Do you understand how this works? So we're not full volume right away. You get out of this church. No way. We're hoping. We're, we're encouraging. We're, we're admonishing, but humbly and gently. And it, it, it might rise. It might rise. But it takes time. So we read things here um, that sound harsh and, and perhaps even unloving to us, right? When you come and you hear him say, keep away from these people, verse 6, or let him not eat, verse 10. That doesn't sound like a Christian thing to say. Or have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed, verse 14. These things don't sound nice. They don't sound fun. But we have to remember that, that, that this has been rising in severity and now it's at a point where though it might seem unloving to us, it's actually one of the most loving things we could do. they got to get how serious the situation is. These brothers were taking lightly the words of God. They were living for the here and now. They were exploiting Christian charity. They were deceiving, perhaps, the family of God. And they were even, perhaps, deceived themselves, thinking they're just great with God and with the church, no problem. Meanwhile, something very, very bad is turning in their hearts. And so love presses in at this point and says, this isn't all right. You either have to turn away from this, or we're going to have to turn away from you. Now, this gets to the third observation, and this is very important. All of these are very important uh, for, for proper biblical admonishment. Third, admonishment is family business. So admonishment requires clear lines, or you don't start. Admonishment rises in severity. You start very slowly. Admonishment is family business. Now, here's what I mean. I'm talking about turning brothers away or, 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 or not associating with them or whatever it is. And you go, man, that sounds brutal. But Paul wants us to make sure we don't forget the heart behind this. He closes his exhortation here in verse 15 we read with this. Do not, do not regard him as an, as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. You hear that? That is so important, you guys. Paul knows that as, as the severity is increased and they're reading this, some people might be like, yeah, I'm sick of those people getting in my pocketbook. I'm sick of it. Let's get them out of here. That's right, Paul. We're standing on your side. Harden their hearts against the enemy and kick them out. And Paul's saying, no way. That's not the heart behind my exhortation here. We do this with tears in our eyes. We're not dealing with enemies. We're, we're dealing with brothers. This is family business here. We're not just purging the church of people that annoy us or hurt us or have offended us or leached onto us. We're a covenant family. 
And so when we warn, it's because we love them. And, and if, God forbid, we have to exclude or something, it's not because we want it to stay there. It's because we want this to wake them up so that we can include them in the end. It's not an us versus them thing. It's a we thing. It's a family thing. Make sense? Now, how are we doing at this? This idea of admonishing the idle, admonishing the unruly. Do we know how to speak a hard word in love? Do we know how to do that? Do we know how to avoid uh, the two extremes? There are two extremes in this, are there not? There's, there, there are those that, that, that um, feel like it's their job to call out everything they see. And then there are those that are like, no way, I hate conflict, run from conflict, I'm not going to call out anything I see. And we want to somehow chart a course down the middle, because think about this with me. Against the, the former extreme, the idea of calling out everything we see, Proverbs 19.11 says this, good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. Do you hear that? We're slow in this. We don't get off on kind of this trigger happy thing against other people. It's not something we even want to do. Do you hear that? We're slow. I don't even want to do this. We're praying that the Holy Spirit would convict so we don't have to say anything. But, but, If faithful, wise, biblical love calls for me to intervene, I will. Against the the latter extreme I I mentioned, the idea of, I don't ever want to say anything. That's never loving. Look, it makes them cry. It makes them angry. It can't be love. Well, we remember Proverbs 27.6. Says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. It goes on and says, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Just flips our concept of love right on its head, doesn't it? Enemies can just keep kissing you and kissing you while they stab you in the back. Whereas friends, friends, the ones that are faithful, the ones that are going to stick with you, at times when they see things where you're crossing lines and you're in trouble, they are going to wound you, but wound you, but they're going to wound you to your face. They're going to wound you with their arm around your shoulder. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Sometimes God might call us to speak and we're ready to do it. Charting a course down the middle. Admonish the unruly, Paul says. Second couplet there in our text. Encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. We remember um, from last week, again, I have to move quickly because I defined these terms last time, but we remember that faint-hearted, really in the Greek, literally means small-souled. Like, my soul is just small. Like, like life in this fallen world has just stepped, it's just pressed in on my soul, so it feels like it's shriveling inside of me. That's what my life feels like right now. That's where my heart's at. 
Some of you might even be there now. And such people, Paul calls us to encourage or console, to come alongside, to comfort, to grieve with, to love. Now, turning again to the Thessalonian church to help us kind of put some flesh on these terms. Um, I want to see what Paul was dealing with with these guys. Now, we read in Acts 17, 1 through 10, that this church was, was born in adversity. Okay? It was born. I mean, every, every, every church Paul ever planted was born in adversity. But in Acts 17, you see it plainly there with the Thessalonian church. You start to get a sense why they're faint-hearted. Because Paul and Silas come in, and, 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 and they're doing their thing. People are getting saved. It's amazing. And then the Jews stir up the rabble among them. And, and, and they start saying, oh, these guys are proclaiming a different king than Jesus. Then the authorities get involved. And Paul and Silas, expelled. They're gone. But the persecution doesn't stop with Paul and Silas gone. It continues uh, raging against these new believers. These new believers. We just had a little bit of time with the Apostle Paul. We got saved. We're stoked on God's grace. And now we're just getting beat up. <laughs> this is brutal. And Paul mentions this in 1 Thessalonians 1.6, 1 Thessalonians 2.14, chapter 3, 1-5. It's all over this letter. that These guys are dealing with affliction, dealing with persecution. And then... To make matters worse, in chapter 4, verse 15, though it's not, or is it, oh, verse 13, sorry. Uh, though it's not totally clear, it would seem that um, the persecution they were facing in Thessalonica had actually left many of their brothers and sisters dead. I mean, people are dying. I, we're not sure if it's for just natural causes. It would seem like it's because of this escalation of persecution. And there are people even being killed in their midst. And so the Thessalonian church is faint-hearted. They are grieving. They, they, it seems like they are doubting. And who wouldn't be, right? I mean, Paul and Silas roll in. Now they're gone. It's just us. We came to this Jesus and our life went to crap. We thought this God was good and now we feel abandoned and lost and even more confused than when the apostle came here. We just on our own, their souls are just shriveling inside of them. And again, that might be where some of you are at given the circumstances of your life. Where are you, God? You're faint-hearted. So what's Paul going to do with a faint-hearted family member. Admonish them? No. Takes a different approach with these brothers and sisters. Encourage them. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Let's read it. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So he's talking about now these, these guys that have died in their midst. And he's going to try to encourage them because he knows they're really struggling with it. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose, again, even so, though Jesus, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive 
who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so, here it is, we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. My apologies, my blue ink. Any text that I have from the Bible, I print in blue. Blue ink is just horrible on my printer right now, so I can't read it. But he ends there saying what? Encourage one another with these words. I'm trying to encourage you right now, Thessalonian church. And I don't know how you try to encourage the faint-hearted in your life. I don't know how you try to to get in and and to speak uh, life to them and to console them. But here's what the Apostle Paul does. He said, walk with me. Walk with me. Let's walk to the cross. Walk with me to the cross. Let's look at the one who died. Let's look at the one who rose again. I want you to know, your story is His. Because He died, because He rose, you will also, though you die, rise with Him. He says, let's talk about for a moment here in the light of the cross. Let's talk about the end of the story. Let's talk about the end of your story. Let's talk about what's waiting for you at the end of all this persecution, at the end of all this death, at the end of all this stuff that's just causing your soul to shrivel. Let's look at the end of the story. Let's talk about the second coming and what it's going to be like. Let me tell you something. On that cross, He's done away with all of your sin. The big problem. So when He returns, it's not going to be returning for you in wrath. It's going to be a glorious, glorious day. And I'm telling you, you might feel abandoned now, but then, as always, we will be with the Lord forever. Forever. He's not abandoned you, though it looks like it. He's not forsaken you, though you feel that way when you're trembling in your, in your room and people are knocking on the door asking if there's a Christian in the house. A follower of the way. But I'm telling you, the end of the story is amazing. Hang on, because God's holding on to you. That, it seems to me, is what the faint-hearted, the small-souled need to hear more than anything. They don't need to hear us whistling, the sun will come out tomorrow. Serious. You know? The sun will come out tomorrow. Because for this Thessalonian church, let me tell you something, it's not going to come out tomorrow. It would seem from kind of doing a close you know, analysis of the two letters, the persecution just gets worse for these brothers. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, and if he says, hey guys, cheer up, the sun will come out tomorrow, they're even more bummed tomorrow because it's gotten worse. More people are dying. More threats against their life. So he doesn't whistle platitudes to them. He proclaims promises 
He proclaims promises. We're not talking about the sun will come up tomorrow and you'll have your best life now. We're talking about the sun is going to return soon. And soon and very soon, you will be fully rescued from this evil age and ushered safely into the world to come. That's what you need to see. The end of the story secured by the cross. That's where we live. In the middle, it's turmoil, but it's on the way to glory. Hang on. It might get harder. The cancer might not go away. You might not find the job that makes all the pieces fall in order and your whole portfolio is perfect. Your kid might not ever come to the Lord, even though you're on your face every day for that child. It might not get better. Tomorrow. But, but, let's go to the end of the story. Hang on. Faint-hearted. It's coming. The day, the new day is dawning. When these words are received through the Spirit by faith, they take the small souled and give them wings. Wasn't it? Let me give you one illustration. I thought this was cool. I erased it from my outline. It's always dangerous when I do this because then I go too long. But uh, I've been watching Chloe. Uh, it's, it's funny. She went through this kick about a month ago um, with Land Before Time, and and she just wanted to watch it almost like every day, you know, for for her TV time. And, and oh, Land Before Time. Well, the first time she watches it, guys. First time she watches it, and the sharp tooth, you know, I don't know if you know, he's cut the T-Rex, he's coming at him, and it's terrifying, and they're, they're back behind the couch, you know, like freaking out, and, 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 uh, they don't know what's gonna happen. And then it was just awesome, because the next day, she wanted to watch it, and I'm looking at her, and here comes the sharp tooth, and he's coming at him, and oh my gosh, what's going on? And she's just sitting there, you know, eating her snack, just chilling out, you know, laid back, I'm like, Chloe, aren't you scared? I mean, this is, this is, you know, this is, he's coming for him. She's like, Dad, essentially, I know how the story ends. <laughs> you know? Like, I know that it's going to be okay in the end. So, so in, in the meantime, even though it's hard, I hold on. I'm okay. I'm calm. I, I, I know where God's taking me. I know where this is going. It's like an anchor for the soul in the midst of the storm. Third little couplet in our text. Help the weak. We've seen admonish the ruly. We've seen encourage the faint-hearted. Now help the weak. We remember that the weak here refer to those who suffer from some incapacity or, or limitation. Uh, whether it's physically, intellectually, socially, religiously, there's some sort of weakness, limitation, incapacity. They're unable. They need help from the outside. It would cover anyone from an infant to the elderly. Anyone from the autistic to, to the schizophrenic or the handicapped. Anyone from an orphan to the widow, from the raped to the robbed. From the kid with, with ADD who can't finish his homework to the guy who's got two jobs and can't provide for his family, just trying. 
But they need help from the outside. There's limitations there. And such people, again, Paul calls us to help, or we recall uh, that the definition there in the Greek, they need to be held on to. They need to be clung to. That's what it means here, help. Hold on to these people. Because their, their hands aren't strong enough to hold on on their own. Now, regarding the Thessalonian context, we actually can't be sure what's being referred to here. I, I don't know. Um, but what's interesting is that it actually provides a really nice counterpoint to the first couplet that we talked about, admonish the unruly. This is an awesome counterpoint to that, to make sure we're balanced in our love. Because I just thought, man, I, I imagine some are, are, are in this Thessalonian church who, who aren't working. And they are requiring and living off of Christian charity. But, 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 it's not because they're idle, unruly, insubordinate, lazy, none of that. It's because they're unable. They're weak. And so, this third couplet encourages us to press in to each person. Avoiding assumptions, asking questions. Who am I dealing with here? Because what you got to understand is what looks to us perhaps on the outside is, ah, he's one of the idle. You don't work, you don't eat, man. Get out of here. But we love you. What looks to us on the outside perhaps like they fit in that camp when you press in and you start to get to know them, here's what you find. Oh, wow. He's actually, he's actually got a mental disorder. I wouldn't have known that. Oh wow, he's got a handicap. He can't find work because he, he busted his back and they fired him. Oh wow, she just came out of an abusive relationship and the last thing she can think about right now is how to balance her checkbook or whatever it is. They need our help, not our admonishment, you see. This is calling for a different expression of wise love. Though it looked similarly on the outside. We're saying, wait a minute, now that I see who I'm dealing with, it's a completely different ministry approach. So, what I see is, as I'm hearing Paul calling this church to help the weak, is, is this kind of reminder that the church is, is not just... The mouthpiece of Christ, admonishing and encouraging. It's also his hands and feet. There's tangible stuff going on in the church. We, we, we don't merely proclaim to others of the world to come. We actually start to bring that world to come back into this world by the way we love and care for them. We don't merely tell others to be warmed and filled. You remember James 2? I think it is. Yeah. Be warmed and filled. We actually say, hey, why don't you come in out of the cold and get into my house by the fire? And we say, hey, sit down at my dining room table. I'm going to feed you like family. We start to actually warn them, actually fill them. We start to help them. We don't just pray or preach the miracle. Like I was talking about with Steve after a prayer meeting. We we act the miracle. 
We, we don't, we, sure, do we ask for God to help and do we tell them that God's going to help? Absolutely. But then you know what we do? We roll up our sleeves and we get in and we do it ourselves as well. Right? Anybody alive out there? Okay. Those whom society walks over and puts down are lifted up and given support by the church. One commentator said, and I just said, I want to be that kind of church where the people that society wants nothing to do with feel welcomed and encouraged here and helped here. Let me pause and make two observations, kind of umbrella observations at this point. Um, now that we've kind of looked at all three of these couplets, I want to start um, moving towards the close. Two observations. First, these are fluid categories. These categories that Paul gives us, both in terms of the object of our love, uh, the people that are either unruly or, or, or idle, or the people that are faint-hearted and weak, and also the, the expressions of love, admonishment, um, encouragement, help. All these categories are, are not hard and fast lines, like one-for-one one exchanges. Like, like there are actually perfect types out there that are, oh, you're the unruly, and that's all you are. Oh, you're the weak, and this is how I'm going to approach you. Like, they're not these hard and fast lines. They're more guidelines. The categories are fluid. They help get us started in, in, in learning how to love one another wisely, but they can't box us in and cause us to kind of pigeonhole one another. Does this make sense? I, every person you ever try to love will fit in one way or another in all three of those categories. I mean, I look at myself. Are there places where I'm unruly and need your admonishment? Sure. There are things in me I don't even know are going on that I need you to tell me. Hey, that's not okay. Am I, are there places where I'm discouraged, where I'm faint-hearted and I feel like my soul is threatening to shrivel? Absolutely. I need your encouragement. Are there places where I'm, I have personal limitations? Like perhaps, I, I don't know, I have OCD tendencies or, or whatever it might be. Yeah, sure. Fine. Or I'm a young man, so I'm limited by my age, and I could use, you know, wise people to say, oh, you know, that's youth talking, man. Let me, let me show you the wise way. You know, I need your help. <laughs> right? And so, so we want to be careful that we, as we approach people in a 1 Thessalonians 5.14 sort of way, we're not just pigeonholing and kind of uh, oversimplifying uh, the complexities of their heart and life. Consider, uh, again, what um, Mike Emlett has to say. He softly warns us against uh, this kind of pigeonholing when he gives an example from his ministry. I counseled one man, he says, struggling with long-term unemployment, whose church elder, I hope we don't do this, concluded he was simply lazy. Ah, he's the, he's the idol, he's the, he's the unruly, he needs admonishment. Bring him into the elders, we'll sit him down. But Mike says, as I got to know him, as I got to know him, as I got to know him, avoid assumptions, ask questions, I certainly saw issues of laziness and selfishness requiring attention. Sure. He needed to see a God who called him to live sacrificially on behalf of others. So in other words, I saw an idle person in need of admonishment. Fine. But I also saw a lot of fear of failure. 
and fear in social context. That's part of why he struggled to go out to work. There's fear that was governing in his heart. So here, he needed to experience a patient father who is near him and who strengthens him with grace and mercy in the midst of his fear. In other words, he was faint-hearted also in need of encouragement. I also discerned that he was weak in executive functioning, skills such as multitasking and prioritizing. So he maybe didn't have the schooling or the education or the parents that we did. And so he doesn't know what to do with planning his schedule and his life. So he's struggling to keep a job. He said, here an acceptance of of perhaps brain-based limitations and also common grace kind of organizational strategies was warranted. So I'm going to try to not just talk to him about gospel stuff and and admonish, admonish him and call him into a different way of living. I'm also going to start to help him with practical skills. Because he's weak. Was he unruly at times? Yes. Fearful? Yes. Weak? Yes. Holistic ministry required patient attention to all aspects of his experience. These are not fluid, or I'm sorry, these are fluid categories. This brother here needed the full array of wise love, not just one hue. Not just one hue. He needed people ready to press in and and, and see the complexity of who he is, what he's dealing with. And this is what it's going to be like for every person you ever try to love. So let the categories of 1 Thessalonians 5.14 guide you forward, but don't let them box you in. Oh, I know. One for one. Admonish them. Second um, observation at this point. We have, so, so first, these are fluid categories. Second, we have personal tendencies. Okay. We have personal tendencies. Hear, hear what I'm saying. All of us, just kind of by nature, are going to trend in certain uh, ones of these kind of expressions of love more than others. We're going to be like better at, oh, I know the, the unruly when I see it, and I'm ready. Put me in, coach. I'll admonish. You know, some of us are gonna are gonna find ourselves more naturally inclined to uh, one or two of these than others. So again, you have those guys who are ready for conflict. They're 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 ready. You, you're not afraid of the hard word. Um, you know how to do admonishment, and and you know how to call others out. But then there are others of us who hear me saying that, and even just the thought of having to call someone else out like makes you sick to your stomach. Like I would rather die. <laughs> than get into conflict with another person. But you could spend all day encouraging them, putting your arm around the downcast. And, and when people are going through stuff, they know who to call. It's you. Because that's, that's just kind of how you make people feel. You encourage them in the dark nights of their soul. But then there are others who would rather not say a word at all. They would rather be in the background serving with their hands and their feet. They'd rather just help the weak. They'd rather make the meals and, and set up the chairs, but they're, they're not all that interested in, in, in speaking. Let me be the servant. I don't want to be the, the mouthpiece. Wise love has many faces, like we said last time, but we tend to wear only one or two. We tend to be good at, be comfortable with, only one or two I think we need to be suspicious if we're always playing the same cards. You know what I mean by that? 
let me read you what uh, David Pallison points out at this point. A hammer thinks everything is a nail. You've heard that, right? In other words, uh, uh, for the person who's good at admonishment, everyone's idle. Everyone's unruly. He's ready to admonish. Call him out. I, I probably fall more into that. A blanket, he says, treats everyone as shivering. In other words, uh, uh, for the people that are good at encouragement, everyone's kind of faint-hearted and they're looking for the way that they can, they can encourage them. Maybe, maybe they do need to be admonished, though. And then, uh, he says, a wheelchair thinks everyone needs a lift. In other words, those people that are good at helping see everyone as weak and they're ready to help in some way. But he goes on and he concludes with this, but wisdom sees people for what they are and gives what is needed. If I'm going to love you truly, I need to know you rightly and I need to be ready to express the full array of wise biblical love. Whether it's the blanket, the wheelchair, or the hammer. So here's yet another reason why doing this as a covenant family is so critical and so awesome. Because, guys, I I am not good at some of these things, all right? And I learn what it looks like from you. And you might learn from my strengths, and we kind of balance each other out. This was huge for me in marriage. I I could do the admonish thing, but I was not so good at encouraging when people were weak. My idea of encouragement was admonishment. You know, why are you afraid? Rise up, soul! Let's go! You know, and it's like, no, it's not helpful right now, Nick. And so watching Megan encourage the faint-hearted was like, wow, oh my gosh, that's what it looks like. So we do this as a covenant family and we grow together in the full array of, 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 of expressing wise love to one another. Whatever our personal tendencies, I'm going to start bringing us down to a close here. Whatever our personal tendencies, there is one particular expression of wise love Paul says, ought to characterize them all. Did you catch it? Patience. Be patient with them all. Fine. Admonish the unruly. Yes. Encourage the faint-hearted. Absolutely. Help the weak. Do it. But whoever you're dealing with, whatever your personal tendency, be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. Loving others is going to take us to the end of ourselves, you guys. It's going to be hard if you're going to do it well. It's going to test your patience. I mean, think with me for a moment. The unruly will test our patience because turning from sin is often a long and messy road. Amen? I'm on that road myself. I'm sorry, Megan. I'm dealing with it again. I'm sorry, Megan. I'm dealing with it. I'm sorry. I'm late again. I'm sorry. It's the same things. What is the deal? It's a long, messy road dealing with this stubborn heart. And so oftentimes when we're dealing with the unruly, we could be, I'm fed up. You're not really sorry. You're not really working on this. I'm over it. Get out of here. We're done. We start admonishing from the hip, just from a distance, like, like, like they're an enemy, not a brother. But patience with the unruly, says, even though I'm admonishing you, 
I'm not beating you up. I'm not taking pleasure in looking down on you. I'm not over you. I'm hoping for you. I'm hoping for you. I believe in you. You can turn from this. I know God's at work in your life, and we're going to watch it happen. I will walk with you down this road. Dealing with the faint-hearted and depressed. It's going to be draining. It can be draining, right? I mean, we might start out the gate like, Oh, I heard what, what, what Nick said. And you, you, you walk with him to the cross. And okay, you're faint-hearted, brother. Here we go. Okay, look, let me tell you the end of the story. Let me tell you what the gospel's done for you. And you're like, yeah, do you feel better? No. No, I don't feel better. <laughs> or maybe, yeah. And then you, you see him next week. You're like, how are you? You feel like, no, that's, that's, I feel like I want to die again. I feel like life's just horrible again. I've lost perspective again. And you're going, oh, you know, another day, another week, another year of that, walking with, through that with a person, and your patience will be tested. If you're, I'm going to pack it up and leave. You'll start treating this, this faint-hearted person like the unruly at that point. Get over it. Man, you don't even want to change, do you? If we're not ready to walk with them. Not ready to walk with them, but patience, patience with the uh, with the faint-hearted says, "Listen, I, I'm ready not just to proclaim promises to you from a distance. <laughs> I'm going to walk with you through the valley. I get it. There's no silver bullet. There's no silver bullet for 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 your discouragement. That's going to just take out you know all all the pain and and make you feel better." This is going to be a fight of faith. It's a fight to the end. And guess what? You, you, you have a brother next to you. Or sister next to you. We're with you in this. Let's walk to the cross again and again and again together. The weak are going to test our patience, are they not? Because the need is often uh, incessant. And oftentimes, like if you have physical limitations, they're not going to grow beyond it. It's just going to always be there. If your kid has ADD or, or, or autism, like my, um, you know, my sister's son or whatever, not going to grow beyond this. Oftentimes, that's, that, I mean, that's hard. And so when we step in with people like that and we try to love them, our, our patience is going to be tested. Because they're going to need a lot from us and we're going to be prone to say, hey, you know what, I, I kind of want my happy little life back. And you're kind of getting in the way of that. You're always kind of like souring the mood. So let's get our happy little 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 huddle going here and pretend that heaven has already arrived. The mission is, let's get in and let's help. Patience looks at the weak and says, my help doesn't have a shelf life. I might struggle, so bear with me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I might at times harumph while I help. That's me at my house. But my help doesn't have a shelf life. There's no expiration date. There's no strings attached. I'm not saying I'll help up to this point and then you better, I better start seeing some results. <laughs> or I'm pulling back. I'm with you in this. That's what patience with the weak says. Now, we must never complain here as I'm talking about this. As if God is asking us to do something that's just, just, just overbearing or unfair or this is too hard. I don't like the Christian life. We're just ready to complain about it. Be careful. Because 
hear me on this. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. God is not asking us to do anything for others that he is not already doing for us. Hear me there. He is not asking you to do anything for others that he is not already doing for you in this room right now. Do you understand that? Is there is there anyone in this room who doesn't know what it's like to deal with the unruliness of the flesh? On a daily basis, I'm dealing with the unruliness, the stubbornness, the willfulness of my flesh. And guess what? There are going to be times where we cross lines and we might not even care. And what does our God do if he's going to love us wisely? What does he do? He's going to get in your face like a father and admonish you. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. Hebrews 12, 6. He's not going to let us get away. I don't know if you think that the admonishment of the Lord is like this uncomfortable thing. It is my assurance, you guys, that if I start going that way, God loves me enough to get in my way, to get in my face and discipline me back. He's loving us like this right now. Who in this room hasn't dealt with the despair of life in a fallen world? I mean, there are some probably that feel, even in this room now, like they're just kind of drowning in the air. Like they're waiting for the doctor to call and the hammer to drop and just shatter what they thought their life was going to be like. What does God do? Where is God in that? He's coming towards you with, with, with scarred hands. I've been in the pain. I've been in the dark night of the soul. I've been there, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've felt that. i walked through it. Let me walk with you. He's a safe place. He's a shelter. He's a refuge. He's a rock. He's all these. He's the strong tower. The psalmist just say, He is the place for the faint-hearted and the weak and the discouraged to run. He's not going to laugh at you for struggling with the same thing again and again. If you're coming towards him, he's going to put his arm around you. He's going to love you well. Who in this room isn't weak and needy and impoverished? Anybody? I mean, it's the mark of, 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 of natural man to say, I don't need anything from God. I don't need anything. But it's the mark of a Christian, you guys. To come out saying, come out of the new birth saying, I need everything from God. From my daily bread to the forgiveness of sins. Everything I need from Him. I am poor in spirit. If He doesn't give me what I need, I'm dead. We are all weak. And you know what? God delights to help us in our weakness. Romans 5, 6. While we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. And that just tells us He's going to be patient with our unruliness, patient with our faint-heartedness, patient with our weakness, 
to the end, even unto death on the cross. This is the kind of God that we serve. This is the kind of God who loves us. This is the God who calls us to love others in the same way. He is not calling us to love others in any way that He is not already loving us Himself. And so our call is not to kind of conjure up this love, but to learn from Him, to lean in on Him, to let His love move through us. He has started the momentum at the cross, and we just let it carry through our lives and let Him rehumanize us as we start to actually love someone other than ourselves wisely. He's given us everything we need. I leave you with 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. Love this. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, church. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. You have everything you need to love others wisely because you have in you the one who so wisely loved you. Amen. Let's pray. God, may we never, never disconnect the, the uh, commands of the gospel and the imperatives from, from the promises. God, you are not calling us to conjure up this love. You know it's not in us. Natively. But you come and you love us in this way and you give us the strength to do it. I pray, Jesus, that you would help us to be a church that looks like the cross. That admonishes and encourages and helps with patience to the end, even to the end of our lives for another person and for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.